If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. That's page 943 of your pew Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that home as our gift to you. John chapter 3. What makes a message compelling? Not just believable, but inspiring. Most important, I think, is substance. Right, A messenger, a speaker, they aim to lift up a vision before others that they will not only understand, but be captivated by and drawn to. Right, A speaker aims to convey a cause that's worth living and dying for. You might think of speeches calling others to protect their own homeland, to fight against tyranny, to fight against injustice. But sharing a vision or even the truth alone doesn't typically motivate the masses. Right? To substance, a gifted orator adds style. They craft their sentences and they deliver them in such a way that light floods the mind and emotion the heart. The will is wooed toward the idea. One thinks of Winston Churchill's, we shall fight on the beaches before the House of Commons or Martin Luther King Jr.'s, I have a dream on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Substance, style, content, charisma. I think there's one more thing that the most uh, compelling speakers possess, and it's character. They imbibe the ideals that they seek to convey. Their character confirms and adds lasting weight to what it is that they are preaching. We're quickly approaching 10 years since the death of Nelson Mandela. He, of course, spent his life fighting apartheid in South Africa. That was the government-instituted racial segregation. In 1963, him and nine others were arrested under counts of sabotage. They were accused of plotting to overthrow the state. 1964, they're tried. In In court, as Nelson Mandela took the stand, rather than testifying and being cross examined, he used his time at the defendant's stock to give a speech, a three hour speech. That's what I'm going to do this morning. <laughs> a three hour tour. No, three hour speech. He actually reversed the roles and he preached as a prosecutor. He put the state on trial, recounting their crimes in a general and then in a specific sense. And he ended his speech with these famous words. During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal with which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. He meant it, of course. He was sentenced to life in prison. It was only after serving 27 years was he freed. Upon being freed, he immediately began to negotiate with the state to end apartheid and, of course, to be successful. He lived and was willing to die for his cause. His speech and his actions, you see, they worked together to move the people toward an ideal. His imprisonment, picture of his character, it served as a living and enduring embodiment of the African struggle. 
You see, a messenger's actions, they have the power to either confirm or contradict the message that someone preaches. There is nothing, I think, more corrosive to a message and a cause than hypocrisy. Nothing more inspiring than authenticity, right? Seeing someone actually live out the ideals that they espouse and that they're calling you to. Every Christian has been given a message and is therefore a messenger. We would say that we're ministers even. Our message, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most wonderful substance, right, that God in love sent his son to die for the world. There is no greater cause or invitation than that of the kingdom of God, the substance. The reality is few Christians speak with the style of a Churchill or a king, and praise God that we're not called to, right? The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of the sinner. The power comes forth by the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, I think more compelling than style over the long run is character. Character that is consistent with the content we preach. Character that confirms the message and gospel that we preach. You see, in the gospel, we hold the supremacy of Christ in salvation. How should that impact the way we live and serve? What does it mean to minister in a way that is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ? John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Amen. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning, because Christ is supreme, we should preach big and live small. Because Christ is supreme, we should preach big and live small. 
By that I mean because Christ is supreme in his person and work. As son and savior, we should exalt him and him alone in our message and in our ministry. There ought to be a consistency between the message we preach and the way we live and serve. In view of the surpassing greatness of Christ, we preach big, we live small. In the words of John, he must increase, we must decrease. We'll split the text in half this morning. We'll consider first the character of the messenger, and second, we'll consider the content of the message. So again, as we're thinking about ministering in a way that's consistent with the gospel, we'll consider first the character of the message, the messenger, and then the content of the message. First, the character of the messenger. I'll say this real quick before we jump in. Perhaps you notice this as you're reading this week or studying. It's not entirely clear who's doing the speaking in verses 31 through 36. Now, the quotations in your text might drop off after verse 30. There aren't quotations in the Greek manuscripts. Okay, so the translators, they put that in there to help us out. It's kind of an interpretive move on their end. So it's possible that 31 through 36 is John, the gospel writer. He's kind of, he's breaking that fourth gospel wall as he does, and he's explaining for us. Or it's John the Baptist, and he's continuing to speak. Kind of traditional view is that it's John the Baptist, more contemporary um, and common view today is that this is the evangelist in verses 31 to 36. Um, I'm going to say I think it's John the Baptist. John the evangelist tends to give us like textual notes, some kind of clues when the switch has happened. We don't see any here. It's not entirely important either way, okay? John the Baptist or John the Evangelist, either way, they're the words of a man named John. <laughs> either way, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. Either way, it's commentary, either from John or it's John the Baptist speaking, right, explaining the message that it is that we lift up. And we'll see it's basically a summary of the first three chapters. But we'll begin at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples that's after this after um, Jesus is in Jerusalem for Passover he's cleansed the temple he's had this extended his first extended conversation in the gospel we see with Nicodemus after this Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized now up to this point in the gospel of John Jesus has begun calling some followers to himself he performed his first of seven signs he did so at Cana he cleared the temple in Jerusalem. He, of course, had a conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus is now, I think this is the, the sign that his public ministry is fully underway. Jesus has gone out into public. Most of the acts before were private, maybe except for the cleansing of the temple. Jesus has gone out somewhere public. People are coming to him to be baptized. And it's kind of an interesting note, but this is the only reference to Jesus baptizing with water in the Gospels. John will actually tell us, chapter 4, verse 2, that it's the disciples who are baptizing on Jesus' behalf. John goes on, verse 23, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized So John, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Anon means spring, and John is baptizing there. The text says, because there was plenty of water. Okay, why do they need so much water? <laughs> You guys know where I'm going. Well, to state what is or should be obvious, they needed a lot of water because they were immersing, they were dunking people, okay? People who had come to believe in the message. John Calvin writes 
From these words, we may infer that John and Christ administered baptism by plunging the whole body beneath the water. Amen. amen. Indeed and amen. Right, this is, it seems like a minor note. It's important insofar as we, we desire to conform our practices to what we see in Scripture. Okay, they go to where there's a lot of water for a reason. I was with Mark Dever once. Some of you may know the name. He's a pastor, started a ministry called Nine Marks, church historian. He was telling me about, I guess he'd gone and he'd visited the church where Ambrose baptized Augustine. Think about that. Ambrose baptized Augustine. He was telling me about how beautiful and big the baptismal was. And he said, do you know why it was so large? I said, why, Mark? He said, because they were baptizing adults. <laughs> I joke, of course, but it's a, we believe the clear testimony of Scripture. I think history verifies this, that baptism happens by means of immersion, that the right is applied to those who first profess, believe, belief in Jesus Christ. Again, it's a small note. It's important as we see to conform our practices to what we see in Scripture. They go to the springs because there's a lot of water there. Then a dispute arises in verse 25. It's not over, I promise, the mode of baptism. It's over its merit. Okay? Verse 25, then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one you testified about who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing. Okay, it seems that we have three different types of baptism or water rites that are going on. Okay, we've got John, he's the OG. We got Jesus, he's the new and the real. And then we have this Jewish purification. It's a kind of imitation. We heard about it in John chapter two. This is, we don't see it in scripture. Rather, it is the teaching and the tradition of the elders the people would wash not just themselves, but their dishes, their couches, their tables, all these things to remain ceremonially pure or clean. So that's one baptism. There's John's baptism. He, as we've seen, has been preaching um, a baptism of repentance, of national repentance. He's been doing so in view of the coming Messiah. So John's baptism, it is in a sense, happens before one's encounter with Christ because it's a baptism of repentance. Jesus' baptism is Christian baptism. It comes after new life has been given by the Spirit. In fact, it's, it's a picture that something has already happened. The sign corresponds to the reality. We saw in John 3 that being born again means being born of water and spirit. It's a reference to Ezekiel 36. Both of these are the work of the Spirit, in regeneration, God washes us. He makes us clean, and he makes us new. Baptism is an external sign that God himself has already done something inside of us. It's physical washing. It corresponds to what God's doing. It's something that man does, we might say. It's a physical washing that shows we are already spiritually clean. So there's this argument, I think, that they're having, okay, between a Jew and John's disciples about whose baptism is the best, Okay, is it the Jewish baptism? Is it John's baptism? Is it Jesus' baptism? But the disciples have, John's disciples have their own concern. Look at verse 26 again. Rabbi, the one you testified about, who is with you across the Jordan, is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. Like, hey, John, the one you were with, 
He's also baptizing, which is kind of our thing, right? It's not Jesus the Baptist, it's John the Baptist. More importantly, their concern is everybody is going to him. We already lost Andrew and John. Every day people are leaving us and they're going to Jesus. You can almost hear them saying to John, and what are you going to do about it? John responds and he gives us a glimpse at a model messenger. Because of the characteristics that he uh, imbibes that are consistent with his message. We'll see a few of these. The first about John, we see that he's faithful, okay? He has faith in God's providence and plan and is walking in obedience. John is trusting God both with his calling and the fruit that he is receiving. Look at verse 27. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. Like, let me cut you off right there. Your pious concern is really envy, which means that your problem is really with God. John is confident, on the other hand, that all that he has, whether the increase or decrease, has been given to him from heaven. You see, to envy anyone else's ministry, especially Christ's, is to take issue with God's plan and providence. John demonstrates for us trust in God's sovereign providence in his plan. Think about John. He was initially popular, but the religious leaders hated him. Now he's still hated, and he's dwindling in popularity. Soon, as we saw in verse 22, he'll be imprisoned. Later, he will lose his head. John's story arc, it's exactly what he preaches in verse 30. He must decrease that Christ might increase. We see that both of these come, the increase of Christ and the decrease of John, as John is faithful to the calling that has been given to him by God. And in the case of John, his dwindling numbers are actually a sign not of faithfulness, faithlessness, it's actually a sign of faithfulness, right? And for him, it's actually a sign of fruitfulness. People are actually going to the Christ that he has been preaching about. This is important for us to know that we can't measure ministerial success solely by numbers. Numbers can tell a story, but they're difficult to discern. Okay, John goes on, verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. Like, guys, this whole time I've been saying I'm not the Messiah. I was sent ahead of him to prepare his way. The serpent-crushing, world-blessing, Israel-restoring prophet, priest, and king was coming, and now he's here. Of course people are leaving us for him, and they should. You see, a good messenger of the gospel, he does not, or she does not, they do not preach to build their own following. They don't strive to cement the allegiance of their people to themselves. Rather, with all that they do, they seek to point people away from them to Christ. Brothers and sisters, sometimes the Lord sees fit to grow these people and their churches and their ministries numerically. Sometimes he does not. The Lord works according to his sovereign pleasure, which is most often hidden from us. What is not hidden from us is our calling. Right? Our job is to exercise faith and faithfulness 
to press on with the task that has been given us to hold up the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs it. John says no one has received anything unless it was given to them by heaven. Notice, John is trusting that both he and Christ are receiving what was given to them by heaven. Not just himself, but Christ's. You see, it's one thing to say that you trust God with your ministry at home, in the church, in your neighborhood, or at work. It's another thing when you see someone else getting what you want, what you've been praying for, what you've been working towards. Contentment in God, discontentment, they're more, it's more easily measured in our relationships with others. Brothers and sisters, are we celebrating the success of others or envying them? Are we praising God for the fruit that they're experiencing or only desiring our own? Think about the things that we often pray for in our church. Conversions, church planning, raising of missionaries, the gift of diversity, a building one day. What if the Lord answers all of those, but he gives them to a different church? Would we be able to say with John, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven? Will we have a spirit of contentment you see the spirit of comparison it reveals that we're not actually looking to heaven but to people a spirit of contentment on the other hand it reveals that we're truly trusting God that we believe that he knows best for his people and his kingdom it shows it demonstrates that we're trusting the supremum that he will do as he sees fit we see that a spirit of contentment in ministry it's rooted in faith and trust it's also rooted in humility Okay? This is another thing that John teaches us, humility. If Christ is who we preach he is, nothing could be more antithetical to our message than striving for supremacy against him. John gives us this picture of humility, and he uses an illustration or a metaphor to demonstrate it. Look at verse 29. He who has the bride is the groom... But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. John tells us that Jesus is the bridegroom. John is but the groom's friend. Okay, which is more technically, it's like in the way that it's being used, it's more like the best man in the way that we think about a best man. Only in their culture, the best man's job was also to help plan the wedding, to help protect the wedding, to ensure that it ran smoothly Okay, the best man's job, think about it, is to plan, protect their wedding, their union. Now, John has just identified Jesus as the Messiah in the previous verse. And I don't doubt that he deliberately uses this image here of Christ as bridegroom. It's repeatedly used in prophetic literature. Isaiah 62 envisions the restoration of Israel. And there in verse 5 it says that just as the groom rejoices over his bride, so God will rejoice over Zion. Hosea chapter 2 likewise speaks to the day where Israel will stop calling the Lord my Baal. That is, they will give up their idolatry. They'll stop calling the Lord my Baal, and they'll begin to call him my husband. The people move from infidelity to faithfulness toward their God and their groom. We see that the dawning of Christ is the coming of God for his bride. Our job is like that of the best man. We work in service of the union, never in competition of it. 
right? We want the bride's affections and her loyalty to grow for the groom alone, not for the best man, not for a counterfeit. She is to be given to him and to him alone. Can you imagine anything more scandalous on a wedding day, anything more perverted than a best man stealing the bride from the groom? The one who is called to love and to serve and to protect their wedding, their union, has torn it asunder. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're doing when we seek, however subtly or not, to direct the affections of God's people away from God and to ourselves. When we work to promote ourselves and not God, when we, under the guise of ministry, seek to steal God's glory, it is like a best man who's been entrusted with something precious. It is like a best man seeking to steal the bride. No, John says, a minister understands his place not as groom but as friend. These are mutually exclusive. There is and can be but only one king, one lord, one savior, one groom. In humility, we must be able to say with John, verse 30, he must increase but I must decrease. See, John not only preaches that Jesus is the Christ and that he is but the forerunner, John means it. The supremacy of Christ demands the increase of Christ, but not just that, it also demands our decrease. Pastor Josh put it well to me this week. It's not even enough for Christ to increase and for us to increase alongside him. No, John says we must decrease There can be no competition between us and the Lord. Of course, if we understand who Christ is that we're preaching, we won't try to rise with him. According to his divinity, he exceeds all categorization. He is the transcendent creator. He is infinite in his being and perfections. According to his manhood, he is the prophet who reveals God. He is the priest who mediates God. He is the king who rules on behalf of God. More surprisingly still, he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. There is none like him. He must increase, meaning the nations must come to recognize, to trust, and to worship him. We, friends, must decrease. He is the bridegroom. We are but the best man, which is still special. We have this little, like, picture book in our house and it's pictures from our wedding day pavy she's like four and a half she already she carries around all the time she loves to look through the pictures as a little girl she's even already dreaming about lord willing her wedding one day there's only one picture in there that she asks me about and she asks me about it all the time probably 30 times i've answered the same question she says daddy why are you sad okay it's a picture of me seeing jess come down the aisle for the first time of course, I'm, I'm you know, crying in the picture. That's why Pavey's asking, why are you sad? I tell her I'm not sad. On that day, my joy was complete. There's one other person in the picture that she's never asked me about. My best man, Chris. So the picture's of me. I'm center. My best man, Chris, my best friend for about 10 years, he's next to me. He's behind me. He's embracing me. He's also beginning to cry. My joy, it was not just my joy on that day that was complete, but also his, right? His support of me, his longings for me came to fulfillment on that day. Pavey does well to take note of the bridegroom, 
But there's one there in the background equally happy. It's the groom's friend. The groom's best friend. You see, rather than being excluded, he's actually called to participate in the joy of the groom. A joy that he doesn't even deserve. You see, we don't decrease to our shame. We decrease, it means that we depend upon Christ, that we defer to his will. It means that we deflect all glory where it's due. The decrease of the friend doesn't mean his destruction. It means the increase of his joy, the completion of his joy. We see the increase of Christ and the decrease of us. It doesn't crush us. It protects us. It brings us to completion. Friends, we all know this from experience. There is nothing more miserable than trying to be God and Savior. There's nothing more life-giving, more joyful than being properly related to God as a creature who's dependent upon him for everything and who receives what we don't even deserve, joy. We see John shows us a model of trust in God's sovereignty, of humility before him who's greater, and it produces one final quality in the messenger. It's joy. Twice John tells us, if you look back, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice in verse 30. So this joy of mine is complete. John got up and preached daily, not to the increase of his glory, but in expectation of the glory to come. And when the groom finally came, when he heard his voice, the one that he was created by and for, the one that all of his longings have been directed toward, when he finally heard the voice of his king, his joy was complete. You see, John had tethered his joy, his deeply rooted, his secure happiness to Christ, to his God and groom, to his Savior and King, to his not just Lord, but friend. We know that John's joy was not in his comfort. We know that it was not in his popularity. It was not in his material wealth. It was not even in the numbers of his ministry. A Christian's joy comes especially from two things. One is being rightly related to God. Scripture, time and again, uses this imagery of a wedding. Sometimes we're pictured as the bride. Sometimes we're guests who don't deserve to be there, who've been brought in. Here, John is picturing us as the best man. Friends, none of these we deserve. He experiences joy that he's been rightly, that he's rightly related to God now. And secondly, he receives joy Simply in service to the king, in knowing that he's been useful to God. You see, even when the world derides us, even if we're shrinking, even when fruit comes more slowly than we desire, even when people are thankless for our ministry, we can experience joy in knowing that God has called us to serve and that he makes us and finds us useful. Not a servant at the wedding, but the best man. Christ indeed is Lord and we are his servants. But we see that rather than robbing us of joy, it is the foundation of joy. As Christ increases in the eyes of the people, as we decrease in the eyes of the world, our joy grows. We see that the pursuit of Christ's glory among the nations is actually the pursuit of our own joy. We rejoice when we hear the voice of the bridegroom. The message we preach, it ought to produce trust, 
humility, and joy because in it we are holding up, we're lifting up the supremacy of Christ, we turn now to consider the content of the message. The content of the message. All of which, again, exalts, magnifies Jesus Christ. Why is John happy to decrease as Christ increases? It's because Christ is supreme. Especially as we consider ourselves in relation to him, we'll see that Christ is supreme for four or five reasons. First, Christ is supreme because of his source. That is where he comes from, his origin. Look at verse 31. Why must he increase? Why must we decrease? 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. We see that John happily contrasts himself between himself with Christ. We are earthly. We speak in earthly terms. That's not to say Christ isn't earthly, right? He truly he is truly man. The word become flesh. But he is not just earthly, he's heavenly, and he's heavenly first. John is picking up on a theme, and he's going to do this all through these verses, themes that we've seen in the first three chapters. Namely, to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand where he comes from. That is, we have to understand his identity as God. We see in John 1 that Jesus is the word made flesh. He's come here to tabernacle among us. John 1.18, he is God. He is Jacob's ladder. He is the son of man. John chapter 2, he is the bridegroom from heaven. He is the true temple of God. John 3, he is descended from heaven. He is given up by God. Jesus is above all and therefore above all. Said differently, Jesus is God. Not just heaven sent, but heaven's son. God from God, light from light, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, before his presence we do well to bow. Before his ministry we do well to submit. We see that deference is not an option before the Lord. The creator must increase, we must decrease. Who and what he is demands it. We see that Christ we preach is supreme because of a source, He's also supreme because of what he's seen. Because of what he's seen, look at verse 32. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. Again, we saw this in basically verbatim, chapter 3, verse 11. What sets Jesus apart from the religious leaders in Israel is that Jesus testifies to something that he alone has seen. Not even John the Baptist has seen. We can make a distinction between, let's call it experiential knowledge and then a kind of studied knowledge. It's technically, it's knowledge that comes before, knowledge that comes after, okay? We can have real knowledge of something without ever having been to it, okay? Who here has been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, maybe, well, a lot of us. (laughs) Field trip, nobody invited me. Okay, (laughs) who's not been? Oh, still a lot of people. That was confusing. (laughs) Okay, but you all still know what the Grand Canyon is, right? You're able to answer my question. Without having visited, you still possess real knowledge. And you can learn more about you. I can tell you that it's in Arizona, that the canyon itself is a mile and a half deep, that at its widest points, it's about 18 miles wide. I can tell you about the colors. 
the pinks, the browns, the oranges. I can even show you a picture. And you possess real knowledge of it. It's an entirely different thing if you've been there to stand small before its grandeur. It is breathtaking. John happily makes this distinction between Christ and himself. Compared to Christ, we speak in earthly terms. That doesn't mean we don't speak about heavenly realities. We have genuine though limited knowledge. We speak by faith, by grace and by faith. Jesus, on the other hand, speaks by right and by sight. He speaks to what he's seen. What has he seen and heard? We saw this in John 1, 18. Jesus says similar in John chapter 6, verse 45 and 46. It is written in the prophets, and they all will be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. We possess genuine knowledge of the Father as we hear him by faith. Jesus speaks about what he has seen. Scripture ends with what we call the beatific vision. It's a picture of man finally looking upon God. It's not just the end of the story of the biblical narrative. It's the end for which we were created and redeemed. The goal of creation and redemption is the vision of God. It is like a couple beholding one another for the first time on their wedding day. Day that we behold God with our eyes. The one we were created by and saved for. You see, what we desire with every fiber of our being, the vision of God, Christ possesses possesses by right. He has seen the Father. And he offers us this sight as a gift. And yet... Verse 32, no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. Again, a theme that we've seen throughout the book of John this far. Some receive, others reject. But we see here how linked the message of Jesus is with who sent him. You can't deny the Son and accept the Father. To call into question the historicity of Christ, the accuracy of his words, the significance of his death, is to call into question the truthfulness of God. If the Son is wrong, then God is a liar. To reject him is to reject the Father. To accept the Son is to affirm that God is trustworthy. Why? Verse 34. The one whom whom God sent speaks God's words. Okay, as we've seen thus far, to see the Son is to see God. To hear the Son is to hear God. Such that to trust in Him is to affirm that God is true. To disobey Christ is to disobey God. This is because, as we see in John 12, 49, Jesus speaks only what He hears. As the Father has authorized Him to speak, His words are God's words. And then John adds another layer to this. He goes on 34, the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. See that Jesus speaks the works, speaks the words of God in part because he possesses the spirit of God. Again, John is picking up a theme we've seen. We saw this in chapter one, verse 32. This is John describing Christ. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and resting on him. 
He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. See that John links these two together. He knows that because Jesus is the long-awaited, Spirit-anointed Messiah, he must therefore be the Son of God. It had to be the Son. This is because he has this dual relationship with the Spirit. With the church, historically, we confess in the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. So we say that the Son, according to his divinity, fully possesses the Spirit from the Father. The Father gives all things to him. The Father and Son together bring, breathe forth the Spirit eternally. Okay, and then Christ, the man, the God-man, as mediator, he's anointed by the Spirit. John here is adding something to what we saw in chapter 1. Not only does the Spirit descend and rest on him, but Jesus possesses the Spirit without measure. Okay, the prophets of old, they possessed the Spirit as well. That's how they were able to speak on God's behalf. They spoke his words. The Spirit would rest on them, would fill them, they would speak on God's behalf. John himself is the last great old covenant prophet. We know from Luke 1.15 that from the womb he was filled with the Spirit. And yet, there is a categorical difference between John and Jesus. What the old covenant prophets had was limited. What Jesus possesses, he does without measure. He is the God who breathes forth the Spirit. He is the man who receives the Spirit without limit. He both bears and then is able to bestow the Spirit. Matthew Henry, 17th century English Puritan, put it this way. The Spirit was not in Christ as in a vessel, but as in a fountain, as in a bottomless ocean. This is why Jesus is able to baptize his people into the Spirit. He doesn't possess the Spirit in a limited degree. The same Spirit that he breathes forth eternally that rested upon him without measure, he breathes forth on us, his people. He is the bearer and bestower of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this means that we can do ministry in confidence, knowing that we possess the same Spirit and the same words of God in Scripture. We possess Spirit and Word, and yet... We must always be on guard from thinking we know better than we do. Like John, we must remember the ordering of this relationship. Jesus speaks the words of God as God. He is indwelt with the Spirit without measure as God the Son. What he possesses by nature, he gives to us as a gift. Okay, Jesus is supreme because of his source, because of his sight, because of his speech and his spirit. And importantly, for sinners like us, Jesus is supreme because of his salvation. We preach the Savior and we do well to point others to him. Verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. John, I promise you, is not just okay with his disciples leaving him for Jesus. He is joyed by it. Like, haven't you heard me say before that I'm not the Messiah? I'm called to prepare the way, right? He, not we, not NBC, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Brothers and sisters, we are but the messengers, and we get to herald the most wonderful message that God, in an act of sheer and outrageous love, gave up his Son to save us. 
Let's start with the end of verse 36 because it presents us with the problem, the reason for the sending. It says, the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. This is basically a summary of Jesus and Nicodemus' conversation. That man is born dead, meaning life. That we already stand justly accused and condemned before God because of our sins before him. The text says the wrath remains on the one who does not believe. Wrath is, it's God's holy, righteous, and necessary response to sin. It's God's anger towards those who have rejected him as king and broken his law. Importantly, when we speak about God's wrath, we're not talking about God as though he's hot-headed. He's not like a spouse or a parent or a king that's out of control. If God were not wrathful, if he were not just, he would be an idolater and a moral monster. Friends, all of our longings for justice, they find their tell us, their end in God, the one who is just. We desire for him to right all wrongs, and he will. But as we saw last week, verse 17, God doesn't send the son to condemn the world, but to save it. He sends the son, verse 16, he gives him up in Love, his one, his only son. If wrath wrath is God's holy and righteous and necessary response to sin, the gospel is God's holy and loving and free response to our sin. Though we deserve to perish, though we deserve condemnation, God in love gives up his son that we might be free, that we might be forgiven, that we might be found new in him. If you're visiting us and you're not a Christian, this is the message we most want you to hear. In love, in kindness, in humility, we want to share with you the same news that we once heard, that we are under the wrath of God, that we have sinned against God, that God is angry with sin, that he will not overlook the guilty. But God himself has made a way. He has given up his son that we might have life eternal. We would encourage you this day not to put it off. The wrath of God will remain on you. God has made a way. We see at the beginning of verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Again, God in love, he sends his Son to the world. Those who are twisted and broken, he gave him up that we might be forgiven. He is crushed in our place that we might be restored On the cross, a wrath that is deserved for us, that ought to remain on us, God placed it upon his son. Justice was satisfied that we might be forgiven and free. What we deserve, he got so that we can get what he deserves. Life, righteousness, sonship. He tasted death that we might live. He breathed up, gave up his spirit that we might be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He was forsaken by the Father that we might become children of God, declared guilty that we might be pardoned. Friend, if you are here and you're not a Christian, we want you to know that God himself has taken notice of you, of us, the world. He sent his son to die for the world. He values us. He treasures us. God offers you life eternal as a gift. You simply have to believe in the message, to trust in the Son. God does not require anything of you. There is nothing that you can give. 
God himself has given it all in the gift of his son. Simply believe upon him today and be saved. Verse 36 tells us how and why the groom came to save the bride. It is the message that the best man seeks to proclaim to the world. The Gospel of John, it's the only gospel that gives us an overlap between John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus's. And it's such a gift to us, I think, because we get to see the character of a messenger, one who willingly fades into the background that Christ might increase. Right? Why would we compete with Christ when we agree with the content that he is supreme, that he is heaven's son, that he alone possesses the words of eternal life, that he alone can give our souls what they most long for, the vision of God. He alone can save. May we both in our words and deeds proclaim the supremacy of Christ. May we remember that he is the Lord, that we are the servants, that he is the savior, that we are the sinners, that he is the groom and we are the friend. May we decrease to the increase of Christ and the increase of our joy. Let's pray. God, we do praise you once again for your loving kindness to us, that you would give up your son for the world, that though we rightly deserve your wrath, your anger for the sins that we have committed against you and against others, we marvel at the fact that you poured it out on your son that we would be free. We pray if any non-Christians are here with us this morning that they would come to